Good morning. This is Jean Abshire, co-host of the International Power Hour. I'm here with my colleague, Cliff Staten, also my co-host. <laughs> We're both uh, professors of political science and international studies, and we are here to talk this morning about what's going on in the news, <laughs> which is a lot. I feel like it's been a crazy and wild couple of weeks in the news world. Well, certainly, if you uh, if you look at what's going on with China and trade issues, uh, you know this is uh, something that President Trump promised in his campaign that he would get he tough delivers. on trade issues, and he is. Uh, there's been a series of tit for tats, so to speak, in terms of, of trade with with specifically with China. Uh, it started when uh, President Trump uh, put. Uh, tariffs on steel and aluminum, which affected a wide range of countries and really didn't affect China that much. Uh, steel and, and aluminum, a very small percentage of what they export to the United States. It did affect some of our closer allies, though. Absolutely. The and Europeans, apparently there Brazil. are special deals made yes, with those indeed. particular folks. Yes. So then uh, uh, China decided to uh, strike back. And they put tariffs on 128 products, mostly from rural states. Why do you think rural states? Well, uh, those are states that voted for, for President Trump. Uh, so put, there were tariffs placed on pork and other agricultural products, wine, oranges, and so on. And then, of course, if you were paying attention yesterday, and I don't know how you couldn't miss it, uh, President Trump uh, announced a list of 1,300 products imported goods from China that would face a 25% um, a tariff. Uh, this amounts to a total of about $50 billion in a, in a year. And the focus of those tend to be on machinery, high-tech components, so uh, things like uh, flat-screen TVs, medical equipment, um, uh, batteries, aircraft parts, um, these uh, certain types of cameras, uh, these, these types of things, uh, semiconductors, electric vehicle parts, and so on. Um, now, that has not gone into effect yet. Right. There's a waiting period for apparently American industries to complain or respond that uh, you're going to hurt us by this particular tariff. And so the list could be altered? The list could be altered, absolutely. And uh, that should be settled by May 22nd. And so when this was announced, uh, many business groups actually came out and said, this, this is basically, this is the wrong approach to go, uh, Mr. President. Uh, the, it was criticized by the Business Roundtable, the National Association of Manufacturers, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, U.S. China Business Council, all basically, they understand that China has infringed upon U.S. Um, um, uh, Property rights, intellectual, intellectual property rights, yeah. yes. But at the same time, they all have stated this is the wrong way to go. Yeah, so I, I was in uh, China some years ago, quite quite a few now actually, um, walking around Shanghai, and uh, some somebody came up to me on the street and said, hey lady, <laughs> would you like to buy, a, still selling DVDs at this point, <laughs> would you like to buy a DVD of this movie? And uh, I was a bit taken aback. Uh, it was a Hollywood blockbuster, and um, it wasn't one that I was like waiting with bated breath for so that I knew exactly what day it was coming out, but it was enough of one that I was aware of that it was on my radar. So I went and checked, and it was coming out in the U.S., you know, first release, the day after 
it was offered to me on the streets of Shanghai as a DVD, um, which is an indication <laughs> that, um, you know, there is illegal intellectual property theft going yes, on. Absolutely. That, that is absolutely real. Um, and the Chinese government also um, has policies whereby um, companies setting up operations in China or producing things in China have to share some of their, um, you know, intellectual property. Uh, so, I mean, this is this has been a subject of much discussion and much complaining for a long time. I think the argument is, even from those companies that have been, that have been subject to this, they continue to do business in China, arguing that the size of the market outweighs uh, that particular thing. And yeah. I, th I guess what the, especially if you talk to folks at the Business Roundtable, they would argue there are mechanisms to address these. We could, oh. this could be addressed. This is the one thing the World Trade Organization was created to do, was to address, quote, non-tariff barriers to trade, to have uh, an institution that could deal with those. We haven't pursued that. Th that would be a way to pursue that through, through the World Trade Organization, as opposed to uh, the use of tariffs. Yeah. Um, which which uh, all of these all of these business business associations would argue that in the end everybody everybody's going to lose. Yeah, um, I think I think um, you made an important point. I mean, it, it, companies are choosing to do business in China, and even though they may be, uh, you know, in, compelled in a sense uh, by the, by China to share some of their secrets, like nobody is standing there with a gun to their head and saying you must produce in China or else. That's like, right. It is their choice, and the Chinese market is 1.3 billion people. It uh, that's a it's lot. The third largest <laughs> export market for the United States, and it is the fastest growing. It is also the fastest growing middle class in the world. Yeah. So having that, it's access. going to continue to be a huge market for, and that means American jobs, right. plain and simple. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, right behind Canada and Mexico comes China, and China is quickly moving up in terms of, 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 of our own export markets here. Well, and, and on these, these tariffs, these things, I mean, he, uh, Trump has, has targeted things very specifically, obviously, a, a list of 1,300 items. Um, but semiconductors, flat-screen TVs... Who purchases those? Absolutely. You I've, and I do. I have a flat screen TV <laughs> in my living room. You and I do. And I've got a semiconductor in my pocket, a.k.a. in my cell phone. Um, and there's I, – I'm not totally sure where my cell phone's – yes, I do. Of course my cell phone's produced in China. Yep, there it is. Um, along with Mine every single iPhone. I mean, so this will – this will affect the Amer American consumer. Absolutely. There's no doubt about we that. We will feel that. Um, and jobs in America. Yeah. Uh, because um, the price will go up. And and Amer many Amer so there will there will be a, a decline in terms of the products that we purchase because of that. Yeah, so, I mean it's uh, supply and demand. People if they, if people if people have to pay more, they will buy less of some things. And if they're buying less of some things, then fewer things are going to be produced. Right. Yeah. On the tit for tat front, of course, this morning China yes. uh, responded yes. to Trump's announcement of yet from yesterday. Yes, I woke up to NPR this morning talking about uh, the Chinese response. And so China hit back with um, a 25% tariff on, in particular, three major U.S. exports, soybeans, cars, and aircraft. Okay. It also includes beef, whiskey, hmm. think of that, Kentucky, and yeah. cigars as well. So, and more orange juice. Uh, this is going to affect key states again. Uh, and uh, this, this, this is... For example, soybeans. You know, people people don't realize 
Yes. China is the major ex, uh, target for our soybean exports. And soybean is part of, it is so much a part of the global food chain. It's yes. built into virtually everything in terms of, in terms of oil, uh, oil, in terms of livestock, especially livestock feed, uh, vegetarian food products. And this, this, you know, the, the those that, uh, that sell soybeans, uh, to China are really upset about about this. Should this should, and again, these haven't been put into effect yet. They're kind of waiting to see yes. what happens with with uh, uh, President Trump's proposed tariffs from yesterday. Yes. Well, and when you say you know this affects our food exports, um, last year China bought 19 billion dollars in farm products from the U.S., which is a lot of money. But it's not just the U.S. Who is a who is a leading soybean producer? Indiana. We make a lot of soybeans. Kentucky's getting hit on the whiskey. Indiana's getting hit on the soybeans. This is no accident. The Chinese have, are, were... They're uh, very strategic in, in those things. And honest about it. They said, Absolutely. you know, like, we know where people vote. Like, that's... And we see this with other tariffs, too. The European tariff list um, that we talked about, I think we talked about. Um, yes, <laughs> we did at one point. It's been a few weeks. It's, hard to, it's almost hard to remember. Uh, the European list also was very strategically uh, constructed to uh, hit certain sectors and, and production areas within the U.S. economy and the, and the Chinese as well. Yes. So this, yeah, the second round of tariffs, um, the tip for t so we have two rounds of tip for tat basically, um, and that the, neither of those are in place yet, but they they are pending. Now the two countries have spoken and have, but I don't think there's been at least from what I can tell, not a whole lot of progress on any of this. Um, no, in these last two um, sets of tariff announcements or since the conversation started, so that suggests not so much progress. So again, this issue. Um, Again, if you talk to most business people, they would argue that we've had problems with, quote, trade with China, yeah. but those can be overcome. The interesting thing, what people don't realize, if we go back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which, we, which uh, uh, President Trump backed out of, is that it dealt specifically with non-tariff barriers to trade, these very things, intellectual property rights and uh, the ability of American investors to, uh, in the service industry to get into these countries and have free access. It dealt specifically with that. Had that been passed, that would have been a set of rules which we could then have used against, the, against, against China to try and encourage China to begin to adopt these policies as well. But once again, we, we chose to opt out of that, out of that uh, further integration in terms of, of glo the global economy. Yeah. Um, speaking of, of uh, international agreements, the, uh, China announced this morning also that they would be uh, definitely invoking the grievance process with the World Trade Organization um, to to challenge U.S. unfair trade practices. That but, was expected, yes. and I think um, my reading of past WTO cases is that they'll win that one. Yeah. Uh, and and the United States, at least from what I've read, is pursuing is going to pursue a case involving intellectual property rights in terms of China through the WTO as well. The only problem with that is these cases are exceedingly slow in mm -hmm. terms of going through that process. But the key point that I want to make is that the process is there. One does not have to resort to tariffs, where in the end uh, that. 
any economist worth his or her salt will tell you everybody's going to lose in that respect. So when China wins, again, assuming that they do, but um, I, I, I agree with your, with your assessment that it's likely, when they win, what, is, what happens then? What does that mean? Why don't you? Well, under international that? law, we're supposed to abide by the ruling. Now, the question is, will we? Um, I mean, should, should uh, I don't even want to speculate uh, in terms of, of uh, should we not abide by that ruling? This could be, uh, this could severely hurt the, the global trading system and, and put a crack in the World Trade Organization and the rules-based system that's been in place since the early 90s and, and its predecessor, GATT, since the late 1940s. All of these, the U.S. took the lead in creating uh, to create a, a, a truly global economy in which there's greater output and everyone would benefit from. So these, I'm not going to say the WTO is in jeopardy at this point. I'm not that type of an alarmist, and I'm hoping that uh, these, these, these trade issues will be resolved uh, uh, by the United States and China rather than, rather than pursuing the, the recent round of, of tariff escalations that uh, each, each, uh, each are pursuing. So what's the big deal about having this rules-based system? I mean, if the rules are not written to our benefit, maybe it would be good to blow that up. The rules are, are written through constant negotiations. Let's look at the TPP. I mean, these, these negotiations went on for seven years, okay? These are long, drawn out. They're very complicated. The TPP was like 1,300 pages long, various chapters in terms of dealing with, non, uh, dealing with non-tariff barriers. Rules are important in terms of expectations, in terms of future expectations for do I invest abroad? Am I sure I'm, I'm not going to be taken advantage of? This has paved the way for the tremendous growth in the global economy since, since the end of World War II, and we've played that major role. Without those rules, Foreign trade becomes risky, and business people don't want to take risks, and thus global trade will shrink, and everyone will once again lose. Uh, at least that's that, that's the logic to it. Yeah, rules provide um, security and predictability, and if I'm going to put my money somewhere, I would like to predictably not lose it. <laughs> absolutely, um, and that's yes. and and that's how investment works. Yes, um, absolutely. And again, as you said. Everybody has benefited from being able to, um, you know, purchase cheaper products that are produced. I mean, again, both of our our phones made in China. How much would these, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred dollar phones cost us if they had been produced in the U.S. Elsewhere, it, it would they would cost substantially more. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. So I, I probably wouldn't have one. I'm pretty cheap. I need to replace mine, and I <laughs> keep looking at the price, and then I think, well, maybe it'll go another month. <laughs> Yes. It so might not. <laughs> this continues. I mean, uh, clearly, pre this, this is what President Trump had promised, and uh, he's, in that sense, delivering on it. I think the real question is, 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 is this the right policy for the United States at this particular moment in time? Um, most observers, and I'm speaking for myself personally now, would argue that this is, this is the wrong policy. And um, as I said, most in the most in the business community would would support me on that. On that, that uh, slapping tariffs is uh, is not the way to resolve these issues. There, there, there are venues for us already established for us to to come to some type of agreement to where to where everyone would benefit.
When it comes to this, this you know, tit for tat escalation and trade war, I always think of the, of the famous Mahatma Gandhi quotation: "An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind." That's absolutely correct. Nobody yes, wins a trade yes. war. That's right. Nobody wins a trade war. Um, but hopefully, it doesn't come to that. Hopefully not. So again, there's a lot of talk, but we are in a in a discussion and comment period, so there's, it's not a done deal. Okay. So, so why don't we uh, talk about um, Russia? Okay. Um, Gene, so. <laughs> uh, we had, um, you know, an incident involving uh, a uh, military-grade poison, yeah, chemical. a nerve agent. In, in, in Britain. So what, what's going on there and uh, what has happened? Uh, we've, uh, we've dismissed several Russian diplomats and they've done the same. Yeah, so this started about a month ago, um, and actually we were we talked to Russia uh, the day after this this kind of this news kind of broke, and and I had it on my list as, as something to maybe talk about, and I ran out of time, so I didn't you know like it was still so tentative then I didn't quite know how big a story it would actually ultimately become. So here we are back again. So about a month ago, um, a uh, former Russian double agent um, named Sergei Skripal, uh, who had uh, uh, been jailed in Russia for spying for Britain, um, was found uh, collapsed unconscious uh, on a park bench with his daughter, um, who's about 30 years old, uh, in the relatively small town of Salisbury, England. Um, this is not like, you know, central London. Right. It's, you know, like the kind of the equivalent of, you know, Louisville, you know. That's true. Like, yes, I it mean, is. Like this kind of place, um, and uh, they were both unconscious, and uh, police responded. And what ultimately uh, developed is that um, they were the victims of, as you said, a chemical grade nerve agent attack. Um, a, but with the the nerve agent was um, something called Novichok, uh, which was uh, developed in the Soviet Union uh, back in the day as a as a weapon and um investigations subsequently in britain identified what what the substance was and um they they've now concluded it was most likely delivered by smearing um the agent on the um the front door doorknob of, yes. of uh Skripal's house and um this has has unleashed a lot um the british have concluded that uh it is almost certainly, almost certainly, the Russians who were uh, behind this. Um, yes, the evidence seems to overwhelmingly point in that direction. Yes, Prime Minister May said again yesterday that the only, the quote, only plausible explanation is that Russia is to blame. And um, I'm sure the British have shared their evidence with um, other countries, including the U.S. The U.S. as well as other countries have um, joined with Britain in condemning that, which has. Uh, resulted in, as you said, uh, more tit for tat. Actually, yes. uh, expulsions of uh, of Russian diplomats from various countries. At this point, twenty nine countries, um, including the U.S., including Britain, including um, a bunch of other allies, European and and not European, uh, have have expelled diplomats. There have been over a hundred Russian diplomats expelled. The U.S. expelled sixty. <coughs> Um, and also uh, closed closed a couple of the, facilities. Uh, one consulate um, in Seattle. Um, there was a 
the Russian consulate in San Francisco was actually closed in November, um, or sorry, December. Um, Obama expelled uh, That's right. 30 or 35 Russian diplomats yes. and closed the San Francisco consulate in December in response to Russia's uh, hacking of the U.S. election. And But this um, 60 is, is obviously a much larger number, and the Seattle consulate uh, was considered a little bit more critical because it's closer to um, U.S. military bases um, in, the, in the Puget Sound area as well as Boeing. Um, and so we've done that, and uh, the Russians, again, the theme for the day seems to be tit for tat. The Russians countered with uh, closing, or sorry, yes, closing our St. Peter, the U.S. consulate in, in St. Petersburg, which is a is probably a bigger deal um, relative to the Seattle consulate, and also expelled uh, 60 U.S. diplomats. Um, and that, that expulsion, the tit for tat, is quite common in these uh, diplomatic exchanges. It's like how this. it's done. Yes. Um, so that was expected that yes. Russia would re- would retaliate. Yes. Uh, the U.S. is claiming that the sixty diplomats that uh, we have expelled um, were all intelligence agents, spies. Um, who knows? <laughs> Who knows? That's for sure part on of that. the plan. Yes. Um, but there, there has been a lot, a lot going on. Um, we also, in the interim, have seen uh, a few weeks ago the Trump administration um, impro- impose uh, financial sanctions on a number of Russians. Uh, that's related to uh, Russians named in um, Special Prosecutor Mueller's indictment uh, relating to the Russian troll farms and. Um, the same day that those were announced, actually, and, and this is something that I think we'll probably be coming back to uh, in, a, in a future power hour, uh, <laughs> the U.S. announced that, um, the, again, the same day as the sanctions were announced, that the Russians had managed to hack into uh, various elements of our energy grid. Um, that they had managed to hack into um, electrical plants, nuclear plants, uh, water purification plants in various places in the U.S. And they haven't done anything damaging. They haven't sabotaged anything. They haven't shut anything down. But these are the type of things that hit at home, so to speak. Oh, yes. And uh-huh. they have, they're in and they've sat there. Um, and that means that if they have access, if they wanted to do something, if they had the motivation politically to launch to, to launch a cyber, att- I mean a full-fledged cyber attack, not just entering the systems, which I think is a is an attack in and of itself. But if they wanted to engage in full-scale cyber warfare at this point, they have the ability to shut down shut down parts of our electrical grids, shut down parts of our, again, water purification system within the U.S. And that would hit very, very fundamentally in our daily lives. Absolutely. That's and that's very, hardcore stuff. That's very stuff. frightening. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Because many people look at, quote, the future of warfare, and front and center is, is this cyber cyber attack warfare committed by whoever's engaging in, the, in this type of war. And yeah. uh, the, the Soviet... The, former Soviet Union, Russia, actually yeah, they have universities in which they teach students. This, this is common in terms of how to engage in this type of warfare. They have uh, in all the major universities across Russia, they have classes in which they teach individuals how to do this. Yeah. So this is a major part of their arsenal, uh, so to speak. And, and, and we should see it that way. 
Absolutely. Um, it is It is in a sense, um, in terms of our, our, our infrastructure to our advantage, that we actually have a very fragmented system um, because that means, you know, one region of the U.S. could be taken down, but others would still be online in terms of, for example, electricity. Um, but that fragmentation also means that um, there's a lot of potential uh, entry points. And also yes. the decentralization means that more different companies have to invest the significant resources in cybersecurity, which isn't a one-time thing. It's not like, you know, you can this put up an electric fence and, it and has keep to intruders be upgraded out. Every, on, almost on every, a daily basis. Yes, all the time. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're talking about physical incursions, you can build, you know, an electric fence compound one-time investment and you're done. But this this is absolutely every day at least. Um, this and is that's, something that we'll come back and address yeah. in, in, a, in a future um, uh, talk about uh, cybersecurity, cyber warfare. Yeah, uh, it's definitely an, uh, what we see as, an, uh, I think, an escalation um, in the tensions between Russia and the West. Um, uh, and, it, and it's interesting, too, because at the same time we see um, some, I think, a definite decline in the quality of, I mean, even further in the quality of relations between the U.S. and Russia, while at the same time we, we still have, um, you know, President Trump saying some positive things about Putin. Um, he called and, and P President Putin was just quote-unquote reelected, um, which I say quote-unquote because it was not a free, fair, or competitive election. Um, and, you know, President Trump, against the advice of his national security team, called and, and uh, congratulated Putin. And I've seen some scholars arguing that uh, this actually, we, we, we kind of have a two-track thing developing with Russia. On one hand, our policies sanctions, expulsion of diplomats, that kind of stuff is kind of hardcore. Um, whereas, you know, on, on the other track, we have President Trump, you know, engaging with Putin on a more on a personal level, you know, relatively positively. So that might be that, you know, that might that might be a longer term trend. It's very possible. Yeah, yes. we'll, we'll yes. kind of have to see. Um, I think it's probably about time for a break. So the International Power Hour will be right back. where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international dash studies. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch snuggling, ball chasing, face licking, and of course, companionship. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare intuitive and now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance will come in with this group. But really the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit the shelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States and the Ad Council. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that we can give our daughters everything they need to grow and learn. But not every child can focus on classes and play dates. Nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. face hunger. That's one in six. School lunch might be their only meal each day, and it's heartbreaking to imagine any child going to bed hungry. We're dreaming of a perfect day when kids can smile, play, and just be kids without worrying about where their next meal will come from. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary. Learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. 
Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. When I grow up, I want to be a new pair of blue jeans. When I grow up, I want to be a kid's first computer. I want to be a warm place on a cold I want to day. Be a football I want to be a bike that races around the country. I want to be a bench on a forest trail. When I grow up, I don't want to be a piece of garbage. And if you recycle me, I won't be. Give your garbage another life. Recycle. Learn how at IWantToBeRecycled.org. Brought to you by Keep America Beautiful and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with Cliff Staten. Um, Cliff, another thing that's been in the news a lot in the last few days is uh, the situation with the Mexican border. We are hearing from President Trump about caravans of immigrants uh, from Honduras coming toward the border. Why don't you... Why don't you tell us what's going on with that? Well, again, this is, again, one of uh, President Trump's promises. And I think in many ways, you know, he periodically brings this up to play to his base. This is politics 101, so to speak. Uh, but apparently he had, was watching uh, Fox, the Fox News Network, and they were covering uh, the so-called caravan of most people from Honduras. They're from other Central American countries as well who were moving through Mexico uh, and with the goal of achieving uh, some type of, of, uh, of uh, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Uh, asylum application. Asylum application, both in Mexico and the United States. And so this, again, as a result of watching this, at least from what I can gather, he's reacted in Twitter and so on and began pushing once again for his emphasis on building the wall and so on and so forth. It's interesting, um, this uh, caravan, uh, which uh, has actually been going on for several years now, and it's actually a protest, a protest against the Central American governments uh, for the lack of protection from gang gang violence in their countries. And Honduras is rife rife with, with gang violence, and many of these, these current folks in this current caravan were from were from Honduras and so part of this protest is like visible and Mexico per, for the most part has allowed these individuals to they haven't really um, sent them back to Honduras or their other countries because many of them actually seek asylum in Mexico under under Mexican law and of course others will go on to the United States turn themselves into the, the border guards and seek asylum as well so what is asylum? Let's just define that term real quickly. Asylum means that uh, you can uh, uh, come to the United States. Or and, another country. Or another country. Yeah. And you can ask f to, be, to, uh, to be on a track for citizenship based upon, based upon persecution from your home government, uh, these types of hardships. So the, a documented need for safety and security. Absolutely. You cannot get asylum um, because you are a quote-unquote economic refugee like you know your country's poor and you know you want better well, economic. Well there was one exception uh, to that that was Cuba a while back but that, yes. that's changed. Um, but as a rule yes as um, a rule. the norm for asylum policies is that you cannot um, you cannot apply based on economic grounds um, wanting uh, you know better job opportunities in a wealthier country is not a grounds for an asylum claim um, 
you have to be have have your life and well being threatened um, by political typically political situations at home. Um, and, I, and it's an application, right? It's yes, not like absolutely. you just, you know, hey, yes. I'm here and I, yes. I need protection. It's there, it's, there's, there's a, a process. Yeah. You go through courts and they make a decision. Uh, you're represented. Uh, the government's represented. And you make an application for, for asylum here. And, and it, it, it's, fairly com- it's fairly common. I mean, it happens. Yes. People coming to the United States all the time seeking asylum from persecution from their own governments and so on. Well, under it, international law, countries are required to absolutely. grant asylum to people who, who ask and who can document the need. I mean, this isn't just, oh, part we'll of be sev- nice. Part this of is several different treaties. And yes. People, what, perhaps a point we should make is that when we sign a treaty, an international treaty, it becomes part of our domestic law. Mm-hmm. So we are supposed to enforce that and, and, and be able to at least have a process. It's not going to guarantee you asylum, but at right. least you will we'll have your hearing. You can make your point. You can make your argument, and we'll decide one way or another. And that's what's happened here. So they're, they're taking advantage of that. Now, this kind of, you know, with the recent budget agreement, that was finally signed with, with which the president, he signed it. He said he didn't like the deal. And he was really upset over the fact that, uh, that uh, there was not enough appropriated for his border wall that, that, he's made prom- that he promised in the campaign to, to his major constituents. And so in absence of that, he's actually, uh, in the last couple of days, has tweeted and talked a little bit about the possibility of using uh, U.S. troops along the border. Yeah. So then, the, then the, that raises all kinds of issues. Well, I mean, um, you know, that was done by President Obama and President Bush as well. They sent troops to the U.S.-Mexico border. These are all National Guard, okay. And But in both of those cases, they did not actively enforce the law. They engaged in actually repairing some of the wall that's the actual wall that's there now they engaged in monitoring some of the equipment uh, but they weren't actually enforcing the law in that particular case yes it's been done before the real question you know I, and is is should this happen um, we don't know the details yet and it really took the pentagon by surprise yeah. uh, the secretary of defense was was kind of caught off his, uh, he, he wasn't ready for, for that when, when President Trump made, made, made that uh, point about possibly bringing U.S. troops to the border. And again, he, he insinuates, you know, again, that this is, this is a crisis uh, that we're being overrun by uh, illegal immigrants, uh, and the numbers simply don't bear that out. For example, let me illustrate. In the year 2000, 1.6 million people were apprehended along the border with Mexico. In 2017, 310,000. It's the lowest since 1971. Now, one sense you might say, well, something's working, obviously. Mm-hmm. There are fewer people coming in, and there are fewer people trying to get across the border. But nonetheless, this, this is a campaign promise he's made. He plays this issue up uh, to his constituents, to his su- base supporters, and uh, this kind of plays into, into his political narrative. Uh, but I think the real question is, I mean, if, if he really pursues uh, moving uh, American troops into this, you know, what, what, is, what are their exact orders? Uh, what authority are they actually given and this type of thing? Well, we're going to have to wait and see on that. So what's going on in Honduras that's giving rise to all this, these 
caravans, quote unquote. Well, Honduras, uh, historically, Honduras is often being compared to the, the, the classic uh, banana republic, so to speak. Uh, and if not you look, the department or the clothing store, not the clothing <laughs> store. That's correct. Uh, the current there was an election and um, a man, President Juan Orlando Hernandez uh, became president. He is the second term. And uh, the international observers, particularly the OAS, basically said there were so many significant violations that they suggested that there would be there should be new elections uh, held. And, uh, oh yes, it's the Organization of American States. Yes, correct. Yes, and so, but uh, the uh, the uh, courts in uh, the uh, the uh, electoral tribunal in in Honduras basically rejected that, and so uh, President Hernandez was sworn in, and it's very controversial, as you might imagine. Lots of protests, uh, even today, lots of protests. Now, what Hernandez campaigned on was an end to the gang violence. Okay. Now, the problem is that, and he's been cited for human rights organizations for this, is that the way he's gone about in fighting the gang violence, it's, it's, it's almost open warfare. And so you've got, in a sense, civilians, once again, being caught in the middle, not only of gang violence, but also the government responding in a violent manner to the gangs as well. And so this is, this is the problem here. And, and gang, gangs have, have been... Uh, dominant in much of Central America since the mid-1980s, early 1990s, and many people have fled uh, coming north either to Mexico or the United States on, on those grounds. Uh, so people, I mean, it is a, basically a situation of warfare that people are... Absolutely, and I think, you know, they, they have a good, to me, they, that, that they could make a good case for their security and safety being threatened. Many of them have had their families threatened, and, and so they... they well, again, this idea of a caravan is to illustrate that. The interesting thing also is President Trump threatened to cut off foreign aid to Honduras. Mm -hmm. Well, the bulk of that foreign aid goes to what type of programs? What do you think? Goes to fight gang, gang violence. violence. Which, again, it, 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 to me, it makes no sense in terms of, in terms of doing that. Uh, we spend, send experts down to try to be working trying to get the courts to be objective, to not be influenced by the executive branch, more of an independent check, and working with neighborhood groups and so on. These are programs that uh, American social workers are working in Honduras. We're trying, trying to work on this gang violence here. And cutting those programs, uh, that would be a self-defeating proposition, it seems to me. So... So again, the immigration issue. Um, you know, this this is Trump's this is Trump's issue. Uh, he's he's very much anti-immigrant, and this kind of fits in on this. So wh why don't we uh, kind of uh, switch gears here again, and maybe uh, there's lots going on in Asia again in terms of North Korea, South Korea. Uh, the U.S. and China, are we, are we finally going to sit down and talk to one another? What do you think? Well, it is, it is interesting. Um, we've, you know, we've talked about North Korea before. We talked about their, their nuclear program and their, their missiles program. Um, and uh, I think we've become accustomed to, to thinking about North Korea as um, a non-cooperative, very isolated rogue player. 
Um, and we have seen uh, in the last couple of months, and it, it's been escalating very recently, um, a, a, a shift and a real um, upping their game in terms of statecraft, which is the the effective conducting of international affairs, essentially. Um, and it actually started with the Olympics. Um, you know, we often think of the Olympics as not be, as being just sports um, and a time for, you know, the international community to come together in friendly competition. Although a closer examination, politics have always been involved in the Olympics. Politics are everywhere. <laughs> politics is about power, and power is everywhere. And so we, what we saw with the Olympics um, was North Korean leader Kim Jong-un uh, using the Olympics very strategically. Um, yes. He initially um, said, well, we're going to send a team to the South Korean Olympics. And then um, he said, well, we'll have our, we'll allow our team to march in at the opening ceremony and with the South Korean team under a uh, Korean unity flag. And then he sent his sister as a, as part of a delegation uh, and that was really seen as as quite note noteworthy um, and she um, Kim Kim Yo-jong is her name she managed to dominate the headlines for oh, yes. days um, yes. which is which is significant because this this puts uh, North Korea in this context in in the driver's seat of all the discussions and all the things that are going on and um, before uh, Kim Yo-jong left uh, South Korea, she hand-delivered a note to uh, the South Korean, uh, sorry, yeah, the South Korean uh, President Moon Jae-in, and it was an invitation for him to meet with her brother, North Korean President. Uh, this is uh, rather significant. This is uh, huge. A real rapprochement between the two. Yes. Um, it, the so they have there. There was a, a South Korean delegation that met with the North Korean delegation, went to the North, um, and they they worked out some logistics, and they have settled on a meeting between the South Korean and North Korean leaders um, that will take that is scheduled to take place on April twenty seventh, um, and uh, this is the third time ever that there have been a, a, there has been a direct meeting between North Korean and South Korean leaders first time since the end of the Korean War a, th a third time sorry and that's that's a that is super significant um, there I mean Kim Jong-un has been in power for a number of years and generally the relations between North and South have not been good they have eroded um, we, we do see with um, the relatively new uh, South Korean President Moon Jae-in, somebody who came in and, and wanted to try to engage again. Yes, um, yes. And that's that's meaningful. He was open to that. Yes. Um, but, uh, you know, this is, but, but, but North Korean leader uh, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-un was not previously real open to this. I mean, he, his tone was, um, you know, belligerence and we've got nukes and we've got missiles and, you know, look out for us. And now he said, well, let's talk. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, it's just been just all kinds of stuff. Uh, and then it was announced uh, that uh, in, in response to an invitation from Kim Jong-un to meet with President Trump, that President Trump would agree to that. And no specific uh, date has been set. Uh, details are not finalized, but they are scheduled to meet sometime in late May, which is amazing. It is quite amazing, it, yes. It is. Um, 
no U.S. president has met with a North Korean leader. Um, this, the North Koreans, I mean, we don't have a good relationship <laughs> with North Korea, period. Um, and to have um, the, the two top leaders uh, have, a, have, a, have an official formal meeting um, in a very short time period without leading up to that with, you know, months and months and months, if not years and years, of meetings between lower-level lower officials, level officials to basically pre-agree on everything. Um, right. That's that's really um, not not normal. Um, that's I mean, normally you begin uh, rapprochement with somebody who has been an adversary with Again, meetings among yeah, a nice a meeting among 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 undersecretaries of state, and you work up from there. But this is President Trump has basically thrown out the rule book in many things, and here's another example of that. Yes, yes, Um, and and it's it's super interesting. Um, After that uh, announcement was made, um, we just last week uh, again, North Korean President Kim Jong Un made a surprise trip to China. Um, China has been. Uh, seen as a key player in this. In actual fact, well, so a lot of people have perceived this, uh, chi- the Chinese government as having a fair bit of, of, I think control is definitely too strong a word, but a lot of sway um, over the North Korean leadership. And, you know, I've seen a lot of analysis that for a while said, oh, that's probably overstated. Um, and, and indeed, in response to uh, North Korea's nuclear program and the the increasing development of their missiles. The Chinese came on board with economic with sanctions, sanctions. Exactly. by the United Nations. They came on board for the first time. Yes, exactly. And that hit, um, in particular, North Korean coal uh, really hard. And uh, and that might actually be what has prompted Kim Jong Un to. Uh, reach out to the international community. But this trip to China was um, a shocker. And I think uh, Kim Jong-un probably gets some credit there for statecraft. It is his first foreign visit that is known since becoming president a number of years ago, which again, like most leaders travel more and he doesn't. Um, That could be because uh, he, he, very young leader, he was in his late 20s when he took over. Um, And North Korea is complicated internally. And so he was he seems to have been, for the first years, very focused but on consolidating was, his own control. This was an control. unannounced visit. Completely uh, much a surprise. Like when the UN President Nixon went opened uh, opened the door to China. Yes, there were rumors that he was going, um, and then all of a sudden, like poof, he's there. There's lots of photo ops. He brought his wife. Um, it was a very uh, pictorial visit, shall we say? Um, but but this but we also with this see him Kim Jong Un stepping up and taking a lead, uh, and this is this is. Um, this is different. Uh, again, it puts us in a position, actually, of being very reactive. He's the one who took the initiative with the um, opening with South Korea via the Olympics. He's the one who really extended the invitation to President Trump, which President Trump accepted. He's the one who goes to China. Um, and, and I think this actually leaves him in quite a strong position. Um, he gets a lot of legitimacy off it. Um, he gets... Uh, status he may he's probably also angling for a relaxing of the sanctions which in many ways is what he wanted all along he wanted to be recognized by the rest of the world as a legitimate ruler and legitimate country and they've said that 
So. The North Koreans have not been subtle on that. Like we want to, we want respect. They've said that. It also, I think, the United States um, and President Trump, when we engage in this, I think we have to be careful about our expectations about what can be achieved in one meeting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, in that respect, this is going to, should this is going to be a long. It should be a long process since there's been no prep work beforehand in terms of what the agreement might look like um, this is going to have to have several several ongoing uh, once we have the assuming we have this meeting and I think it's crucial that we do now that momentum has built up mm-hmm. and if, if I'm a member of the Trump administration I want to make sure that this meeting actually happens but the expectations of of what we're going to achieve in yeah. one meeting should be really lowered because, in fact, we're not going to achieve a whole lot. No. Just having the meeting in itself is an achievement. Yes, that's big. But it's important that following that, that uh, teams of negotiators, lower level, begin to work on all the problems and issues between North Korea, South Korea, and North Korea and the United States in yeah. terms of addressing those issues and over time, you know, dealing with nuclear we- weapons and hopefully come up with some type of agreement. But I, I, there's, there's a fear, at least from my perspective, that we oversell mm-hmm. this meeting and our expectations. And I'm not so sure more than just a meeting and shaking hands and getting pictures. This is about all this is going to be, which is a major achievement. Yeah. But the substance in dealing with nuclear weapons in North Korea, that's going to be a long, drawn-out process. Yeah. Kim, Jong, er, Kim Jong-un, again, North Korean leader, has uh, put denuclearization on the table. Um, and I would bet my last penny that that will not happen. He can talk about it, and that you know brings others to the table, obviously. But that's not really going to happen. It's not... He's not going to. He's not going to give up his nukes. Absolutely not. No, I think the goal here should be to, over a process of several ongoing meetings, bring them into the uh, nuclear nonproliferation regime. Back in. Begin back in yeah. and begin to at least limit the, the growth yes. of their nuclear weapons and so on. Yes. Just like we just like we, we we try to do with virtually every other country in terms exactly. of the non, nuclear nonproliferation regime. I'm yeah. like you. The genie's out of the bottle there yep. and they're not going to genie's not going to go back in. Nope. So uh, yep. the question is what do you do with genie once she's out so <laughs> to speak. Um, it's interesting. Uh, it's 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 major stuff and and stuff I mean if you if you told me months ago that this is where we would be I'd be would have said no, no way. But here yes. we are. Here we are. That's and interesting. So we'll see here. Let's take a short break, and we'll be back in just a couple of minutes here. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Department of Political Science at IU Southeast, studying power in all its forms and places, offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political science. You're not wired to have a response to this sound. You're neutral to it, and you can hear it repeatedly without feeling anything. But when we introduce a new stimulus, save the food, we've achieved pulling a natural or inborn response from you. Save the food, because 40% of all food in the U.S. never gets eaten. Save the food. Cook it, store it, share it. Just don't waste it. For tips and recipes, visit savethefood.com, brought to you by NRDC and the Ad Council. Welcome back to The Cat Show. Up next, we have Nico. 
Nico is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right. A group known especially for their sunspot sleeping, ball chasing, leg rubbing, and of course, companionship. Just look how she struts. It's like she owns the place. And see how she curls up and cuddles her person. The pitch on her purring is simply perfect. Nice one. Fantastic cat. But really the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Nico is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with my co-host Cliff Staten. Uh, Cliff, uh, another another news story that has been bubbling along that we haven't uh, ha- we haven't talked about previously is what's going on in Brazil. Um, there's there's major news that will come out today. Um, so why don't you why don't you tell us what's going on there? Well, the country of Brazil uh, has over the last gosh five years, I suppose, faced a series of corruption scandals. Uh, in in the government, and uh, it's actually it it goes by the nickname of the car wash that's taking place. You've got hundreds of members of Congress, you've got business people all being uh, uh, taken in front of the courts and uh, cited for corruption and so on and so forth. So, and the big story here though is that former President uh, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, or Lula as he's often called who is the leader of the Workers' Party. Now, the Workers' Party is is the first political party in Brazil that ever represented the lower classes, the middle, the lower middle and working class people. They act, he was elected president in 2003 and served to 2011. His successor, Dilma Rousseff, also a member of the Workers' Party as well, uh, governed until 2016 when a corruption scandal hit her and she was actually impeached. In the meantime, Lula himself has fell, fallen under corruption charges, and this involves kickbacks with, with, with state-run corporations. Brazil has, has what we call state capitalism, that the major industries are either run by the state or a combination of state and the private sector. And there's a lot of room for corruption in these types of arrangements. And so Lula was caught up in that, found guilty by a lower court, and uh, then he uh, appealed. The higher court rejected his claim, and, and thus he's found guilty, and he was heading to jail for 12 years. Well, we're now waiting on the Supreme Court to make a ruling. Now, why is this significant? Well, he is the front runner in the current presidential election with about 37% of the vote. And more than likely, if he's allowed to run, he will win. Uh, Brazil is, the political system is very fragmented. Hundreds of political parties and uh, with 37% he'll form a coalition government and, and, and govern the country. But if he doesn't, if he's told he has to go to jail by the Supreme Court, then the, the closest individual is, is a member of, of a right-wing party who has 16% of the vote. Now Brazilian That's a big that, gap between 16% versus 37%. That would make it much more difficult to put together a ruling coalition. But this is big news in terms of uh, when I teach my Latin American politics class and we talk about the move towards democracy, the interesting thing, one of the things we talk about is, is an independent judiciary that this Super is not coerced by the, execu- by the executive branch or the Congress. And so over the past four or five years, we've seen the judiciary act in an independent manner. They're actually finding they've got corruption charges against these individuals and people are going to jail. The, 
the impeachment of Rousseff uh, was, a was a big deal. So to me, uh, even though you know my own political inclinations lie with Lula and the Workers' Party, the, I see this as a good thing for Brazilian democracy in terms of 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 the law being being, being a, the rule of law being established and independent judiciary. It's a step forward in terms of in terms of democracy. Now, does it make Brazilian politics? More complicated, more chaotic. Absolutely, it does. Uh, but uh, to me, the, the, as, as when we look at indicators of steps that countries make to become more democratic, one of those is working in Brazil today. Yeah, I, obviously the the massive corruption that is present. I mean, when you have a, a huge percentage of the Congress. Hundreds of businessmen, yeah. uh, political commentators, dozens of members of Congress are also being indicted as yeah. well. That, I mean, that level so, of corruption is, is not a good sign. But no. as you say, the fact that the courts are acting independently, that they are, that they are enforcing the rule of law, those are, those are huge indicators for yes. democracy. To me, it's a step forward for Brazilian democracy yeah. in that sense. That's encouraging, um, actually. So, <laughs> Well, we got a couple, uh, maybe a minute here. What's going on in South Africa, Jean? Um, well, so uh, the news out of South Africa this week is that um, the former or anti-apartheid le leader uh, Winnie Mandela has passed away at the age of 81. Um, Winnie Mandela is is typically, uh, well, I'm I'm looking at a at a news at, at our obituary right now, and it's Winnie Mandela, ex-wife of South Africa's former president Nelson Mandela, has died, and that's how she's always framed the the ex-wife of the former president Nelson Mandela. It's all about Nelson Mandela. Um, but and, she, in her own right, yes, helped pave the way for South Africa. And as I think well. that's important. Absolutely. Nelson Mandela was unquestionably a, a, a huge huge figure but he was in jail for many years <laughs> 38 38 <laughs> yes. um and uh or sorry she was married to him for uh 38 and 27 of those years when they were married he was behind bars yes so yeah and and during that time while he was jailed she carried on the struggle against apartheid which is the system of extreme segregation by race um that the minority about 20 percent white population of south africa um placed on the other 80 percent of the population um and uh, you know that met with decades of struggle to to get rid of that abusive system and um, and so, you know, the, the Mandela family has, was iconic in that. And it wasn't just him. Winnie Mandela was a very big figure in that, too. Um, and, and, and now they've lost her. Well, that kind of leads us to wrap things up, just kind of to follow up on that. This is the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination and uh, kind of fits fits with that. It does. Um, um, ultimately, uh, the... Uh, South African struggle for nonviolence, sh or, sorry, for uh, against apartheid shifted from a violent struggle to a nonviolent struggle, um, and Martin Luther King and and his efforts in leading nonviolent uh, struggle for rights was uh, an icon and a and a um, you know a role model for nonviolent struggles all over the world, including ultimately the nonviolent struggle against apartheid. Yeah. 
So uh, we are out of time for the International Power Hour. I'd like to thank you for listening. Um, you can tune in uh, next week and listen to a discussion about uh, some development issues, trying to increase uh, education and wealth um, and, all, and uh democracy in uh, less developed countries. Um, you can also uh, listen to past episodes of the International Power Hour on podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or on our website. Thank you again for listening.